Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I am your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, I am joined by Roy Dockery, Vice President of Customer Care at Swiss Log Healthcare. And we're going to be talking today about the field service talent gap. Uh, I met Roy last year at Field Service USA, where he was speaking on recruiting and hiring practices in field service. I really, really liked his take on this topic. Um, It's of his opinion that organizations need to take more control of this, that it is um, a problem that is a problem, but is also something that companies need to be more um, proactive about solving. Um, So today we're going to talk through his thoughts on this and some of the things that Swisslog has done to uh, to work toward resolution on this issue. And he's going to give you some advice based on his experiences. So Roy, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your role at Swisslog? Absolutely. Hello, Sarah. Um, my role at Swisslog, as you stated, I'm the vice president of customer care. And what that means at Swisslog is that I'm essentially responsible for all customer-facing interactions um, post-sales. So I'm responsible for the field service organization, um, as well as our service planning team that does all of our uh, installations and preventative maintenance and on-demand service scheduling. And then I'm also responsible for our technical support team on both the hardware and software support side for all of North America. So uh, that's my current role. You know, I started in field service as a technician in transport automation and pharmacy automation systems and of uh, through the years, kind of worked up through the organization, but all roles either in field service or in the uh, just in the building and promoting a field service throughout my career thus far since I got out the military. So <laughs> great, awesome. So what I really liked most uh, when I first met you last year is that um, your attitude around this topic is very much a go getter attitude. So it is a real problem. I mean, we've all seen statistics on sort of the shortage of um, folks to fill roles in service industries. But I think it's very easy for companies to commiserate and and just kind of, uh, you know, misery loves company, right? And I like that you had a really different perspective in terms of taking charge. The, the one thing that I love that you said is that we don't really have a talent gap, we have an experience gap. So I was hoping you can explain to the audience, you know, what you mean by that and, and what the difference between those two things is. Yeah. And that's, um, and you know, and I came to that and we'll talk about it a little bit later. I can't, I didn't come to that on purpose, right? Like I kind of ran into that <laughs> trying to solve my own problem. Right. So I kind of came across this in a selfish pursuit of, uh, trying to, trying to get employees with better behavior because we had a turnover issue that was, wasn't really associated with skills or technical expertise. It was more associated with behavior, but one thing that I've found with that gap as I, you know, just hear people within the industry and as I as I go to different events, when people talk about it, um, the gap is there and it does genuinely exist. Right. But it's because our traditional paths for um, for vocational training and skilled trades are largely gone. Right. Apprenticeships are gone. Um, mm-hmm. There there aren't a lot of organizations out there that are trying to kind of farm and create these, right? So vocational training used to happen in a very formalized manner where people had codified documentation that they had been trained. And then we, as employers, trusted it, whether that was the military, unions, apprenticeship programs, uh, you know, vocational schools. That's kind of the process that we've been used to. but Mm -hmm. But that was just the method through which people learned at that time, right? So when you look now, learning has not stopped. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's when I say there's, I don't think there's a talent gap. 
because people are still learning. It's just that learning has changed, right? To people learning through websites, on their cell phones, through YouTube videos, and the access to information has allowed people to be self-taught in a manner that hasn't been seen, right? In like since in the industrial age or the computer age or now this um, this this IoT age. So I think that's what's caused that paradigm is that we're we're people are getting people are learning now, but not through formal means that we've always looked for on a resume. Mm-hmm. So now when I get a resume, I'm looking for people who I really want as the hiring manager in field service. I want someone with the, with the skills, but the system that I've always used was hiring people who had experience. Right. So I think that's the dynamic that we kind of have to shift. Like we have to understand that people are learning and acquiring skills in informal manners that benefit us as technology companies. And we have to shift our focus to be able to recruit them, train them and then retain them. So. Right. No, that's a great point. I mean, not everyone can hire experienced people like, you know, we're at talent gap or not, or, or, or labor shortage or not, you're just going to run out of people that have experience. I mean, um, and that's what I like about what you're saying in terms of take responsibility for this. I mean, part of that is you, you companies need to adopt this willingness to, um, forego experience for some of those behaviors and skills that are, um, useful in these roles. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you came to this recognition. Um, how did you sort of begin the effort to determine those skills, behaviors, and attributes that you needed to be looking for in those situations where experience was just not going to be able to be the primary driver of, um, a candidate? Originally, and I mentioned it briefly before, like this, this isn't where our journey began. Like that's not what we were focused on was the skills, because uh, historically we normally hired people out of the military. I'm out of the military. Probably 80 percent of my organization is ex-military. So we've always had kind of this source of skilled people who in reality didn't have experience in healthcare, technology or in field service. Right. They only had skills that we knew that they had acquired through training in the military and that skill set was very broad. They were, you know, Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard. They were airplane mechanics, uh, fire control system mechanics, radio controlmen, firefighters, military police, right? Like we would hire people across this broad swath of skill sets. Um, but the military had gave them the formal identification on their resume that you're capable of being trained and you have skills. So, mm-hmm. but what I found then was that we were having an issue, not necessarily with technical skill, but we were having a behavioral problem. So when I was running our pharmacy automation division, which is 24 hour support, um, very high touch, uh, you know, within an hour, two hour response time, very difficult from a work life balance perspective, we were having issues with retaining people because of behavior. So most of our terminations were involuntary terminations for in for behavioral issues not technical problems and not finding people who didn't have what we would consider talent or or the skill, right? So we kind of went down that path originally um, and, you know, built, we, we partnered with the company. Uh, we, you know, we did a basically a behavioral evaluation of our organization, identified the kind of cultural elements that allowed people to be successful in support in our specific industry for our application um, within healthcare. And so once we kind of developed that behavioral aspect of it to where now we're asking and we we developed it as a tool 
for behavioral questions during the interview process. And that's what you Mm -hmm. saw me speak on a few years ago, primarily. So it was that tool that we started utilizing. But what we found, especially when we would have a geographic area, when we didn't have military candidates, we started noticing that the pool of, well, we, we started having an issue with our pool of candidates was rather small, right? So when we couldn't find military people, we were only finding like senior field service engineers from other companies. Mm-hmm. So we're like, this is like all of the people out of the military are, you know, and, and not senior from just an age perspective, but most of the people we're hiring out of military were maybe eight, 10 to 12 years in the military. So they're anywhere from, you know, it could be anywhere from 22 to their mid 40s. Right. So the age like, OK, we've been hiring a, a kind of broad demographic of people from an age perspective. But when we when we were left to just recruit from people who were online applying for field service engineer jobs, they all looked the same. Right. They were all like senior candidates, 15 to 20 years of experience um, and kind of rigid. So we so when we started looking at that, we had to adjust. We were like, OK, the people we recruit out the military are very good. They have good behavior. They have the necessary skills. But when we just try to recruit from the general pool of available talent, we never get the same people, right? We don't get people who look the same or feel the same. So then we started looking at, okay, what is it that we're getting from the military candidates that we can start looking for from the general population? Mm -hmm. And that's when the skills part of it kind of popped out. Like military guys learned a skill in the military, but there are people outside of the military learning skills as well. So let's focus on acquiring people or or even, and we had to, and we'll talk about it a little later, we had to go through the process of changing our job description, changing our workforce experience, but even changing our recruitment process where we had to push back <laughs> on recruitment and said, stop sending me senior field service engineers from my competitors. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want those candidates, right? And I, And that's where I think we have the control. At the end of the day, we have to hire and train these people. So if we think we need a different type of candidate, then we need to start we need to start waiting until we get the right candidate instead of just taking the people who are available. Right. So I want to get into um, some of that more tactical stuff that you guys did. But before we go there, can you tell us a bit about the behavioral assessment tool that you use? And then what did you find out of that? Like, what are some of the those behavioral um, attributes that you have to look for in, in candidates for them to be successful at Swisslog? So the tool we use is through a, a company called Perrin. So it's P-A-I-R-I-N. Um, and they're a startup company out of Denver. Um, and they actually primarily focus on workforce development is kind of what their tool originally was for. So it's taking people who are either trying to transition careers or high school graduates and kind of evaluate their readiness to enter the workforce or to re-enter the workforce. And so I partnered with them to do some stuff on the business side, which was almost six years ago. So it's expanded considerably. But so basically what we do is you give the behavioral assessment to all of your employees or to a or to a group of your employees and then to the um, to the company, to Perrin, you tell them who you feel your top and bottom performers are. So you so you have everyone take it and you say, hey, these are my top 20 guys. Here's kind of my bottom five or 10. And here's some people who are in the middle. Um, And so you kind of almost like a net promoter score, right? Like you got your promoters and detractors. And then so what they do is they take the assessment information from your existing employees, and then they look to see what attributes exist consistently across your top performers 
that don't exist in your bottom performers and they eliminate the ones that are the same. So, um, so some, you know, from supportiveness, for example, like supportiveness is a behavioral attribute. Anyone who has a desire to work in field service has a high supportiveness attribute. So whether they're a bad performer or a good performer, behaviorally, they like supporting people, technology, or whatever. So you wouldn't necessarily count that as as a unique identifier as a top performer because some mm-hmm. of those things are just the kind of person that goes into the technical field. Um, so some of the soft skill stuff, well, I mean, one of them in particular is like commonality, which is an attribute. There's a very specific range for it. But commonality is your ability to understand other people's opinions and perceptions, right? So if someone's explaining a problem to me, I can see the problem from their point if I have neutral or high commonality, where if I have a low commonality, if like I can't see other people's point. Mm-hmm. So from a service perspective, <laughs> you can see right. how that would be difficult in field service, wherein if I'm a technical person, it's hard for me to see the opinion of a non-technical person. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's so it's, you know, so commonality. Another one is um, an interesting thing is field service people have a, um, are are low in coaching. Or at least my top performers were not that they were averse to coaching, but they can function and succeed without having to be coached. Mm-hmm. So they're not they don't reject it, but they don't necessarily seek it out, which, again, field service, remote deployed people who aren't in front of their bosses every day. Like that's a behavior we kind of identified. Our guys are kind of lower on the scale than the average. Right. Because most people kind of sit towards the center or to the right of the scale and field service technicians are like way to the bottom left side mm-hmm. or at least the ones we had that were successful. So there were I mean, that's just an example of some of the attributes we defined. And what it is, is when you find those attributes that are either the things that stand out from a service perspective that we want to look at, what the what the, the tool did was gave us behavioral questions to ask during the interview to kind of bring out those areas that were either concerning or that were strengths. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do behavioral interviews, but most of the questions are the same and most of us can Google them. Right. So it's what are your two greatest weaknesses? What are your <laughs> two greatest sure. strengths? Tell me of a scenario where you had to deal with conflict and they're kind of broad and vague. Um, and the one thing I found about the assessment, because you're actually tapping into someone's personality, the responses were very personal and very mm-hmm. passionate. So you really got to see their personality. Um, one of the questions that always either gave us a very good or bad response the question was like, tell us of an example where you felt like you were disciplined for doing what was best for the customer. Mm-hmm. Right. So you kind of get people who and you, so you either have a guy that's like, look, I, I did what was right or I did what was what, you know, what was integrist and honest. And then you have the guy that was like, I don't care what anyone said. I knew this was the way to fix it. So I did it. Right. So there's a difference of. Mm-hmm. Like you have one guy that'll do it, <laughs> but it's about him thinking he's correct. So right. it's kind of more narcissistic than like helpful. the motivation behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's the same answer. And both people give the answer with passion and conviction because they believe that they were right in that situation that they're describing. Yeah. Right. So that kind of that's kind of how that built out. And just an example of some of the questions and the attributes we use to evaluate the behavior of our candidates. Okay. So as an aside um, for the listeners and Roy, I'm going to ask you not to go into any specifics. Um, But when I met Roy and he first told me about this assessment, I was so interested. I asked him to take it myself and I did. 
And it was interesting. And, and the punchline was Roy said he absolutely would not hire me, <laughs> but, um, but it was really cool to do it and, and see, uh, you know, what it said about me. Um, so it was very interesting. All right. So let's talk about, um, so you, you, learn to implement this tool and get this insight. So let's talk a bit about how you've been able to take that information and use it for positive change within SwissLog's recruitment and hiring practices. So let's go back to something you alluded to a bit um, a few minutes ago, which is (coughs) having to get alignment between um, the lessons you were learning and the changes you knew you needed to make to have success with hiring from a field service perspective and getting the broader HR um, function within SwissLog aligned with that change. So one disclaimer, I don't want to beat up on HR, so I'm going to give them some credit (laughs) before I say anything that sounds like a complaint, right? So the one thing is, like you said, I think a lot of times from a hiring manager perspective, we get kind of cynical and negative. So I hear field service always and just different organizations always complaining about human resources um, and how they're like a barrier or an obstacle. Um, I kind of want to take that off the table a little bit and say that at the end of the day, we hire these people, (laughs) right? So if we don't like the candidates that we're getting, we should do something about it. Um, And, you know, so because we're not helping them. If I'm complaining that you're giving me the wrong candidates, but I keep hiring them, I'm sending you the wrong message, right? Mm -hmm. It's like rewarding my daughter for bad behavior. So it's like she's not going to think it's bad if I keep giving her candy. So if I keep extending offers and paying people who they present to me, That's why there's a disconnect, right? Because our actions don't line up with our words. We say we're not getting the right people, but we keep hiring them regardless. Um, So that's kind of my disclaimer. So from from the first step, um, the first step was introducing the behavioral questions we just talked about. So we can kind of knock that one off the list because that helps in the interview process for people who have been screened and selected for interviews, right? So we only use this assessment and behavioral questions on people who we interviewed. And that was the first thing that helped us overcome the hurdle with human resources for using an assessment for screening purposes, which they don't want to do, right? And most HR departments are not going to do. So we actually allowed the human resources department to go through their entire screening process and pick candidates for us to interview before we even introduce the assessment. So then that way, there is no bias towards who we interview. Mm-hmm. based on the assessment. So it kind of cleared up some of the the legality and just, you know, the non-discriminatory and all of that other stuff. So everyone goes through. Um, so no one is being denied an opportunity to interview for the job based on this assessment. They only get the assessment if they're actually getting interviewed for the job. So that was the first step. And that was the first step of like agreement because <laughs> there was resistance just in, in just doing the assessment in itself. And that, to me, satisfied the legal aspect of it. It allowed HR to do their entire process, ask all of their questions the way that they wanted to answer them. And then Mm -hmm. this supplemented our um, technical interviews with behavioral questions. So before I move to the second step, any questions on the first one? No, I think that makes sense. Okay. Um, And so the second step was we had to we had to adjust our job descriptions and we because we couldn't continue to be dependent on just military candidates Mm -hmm. Um, just because less people are going in the military and our jobs are distributed across North America. Sometimes you can't get somebody who wants to move to Iowa (laughs) after leaving the military in San Diego. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things we did was adjust our job description. And in turn, because you can't have this disconnect. We, we did have it originally. We adjusted our job description and we didn't adjust our job posting. 
right? So we were using the same job posting, but there were some things in the job posting that was that that was that were inherent to the old job description. So mm-hmm. we updated the job description and then worked with the human resources department to change the job posting so that it would be encouraging to have more people apply, right? So we we put I think we put in like big letters and just either, even stuff that would pop up in keywords like military. Mm-hmm. So even if people were ex-military or had the skills, we kind of put those words in our job descriptions so that it would pull people in who were ex-military. We removed education requirements like industry specific experience, mm-hmm. like field service. Like you can be a person who's a technician that's worked on electromechanical or computer-based equipment, but you never did it in the field. Right. So someone who can work on medical equipment in a hospital is a good employee for me, but he's never been a field service technician. So we kind of removed some of the field experience and made it more customer service or technical support specific. Um, And then we listed out specific skills. So whether it's troubleshooting, creative thinking, um, communication, customer service, utilizing blueprints, hand tools, multimeters, um, basic networking, we started listing specific skills instead of kind of listing our job and expecting people to understand that they can do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was the second step is in that aspect of the job description and the job posting. So I do want to, um, to pause here because I think it's such an important point. This is where we get into the, the real work of, yes, this is a challenge for, a lot of different service industries, this, this quote unquote talent gap. Right. Um, but work like this, okay. That I, I think, you know, people maybe overlook or just don't want to take the time to do. Um, I've had a lot of conversations recently with folks about, you know, sort of what I refer to as the field service branding problem. It's not a career people envision for themselves. It's not something that a lot of people are aware of. So, being strategic about things like job descriptions and job postings and and being inventive about how do you get more eyes on this? How do you, you, instead of doing what you've done for the past five or 10 years, which clearly isn't going to work anymore, how do you revisit that and really start to be creative about making this an industry and a job that people can envision a career in. And I think, you know, um, you and I have talked about some of the things that you did. Uh, I don't know if you want to touch on this, that you worked into those job descriptions in terms of, you know, flexibility and schedule and, and some of the aspects of field service that can be broadly appealing to candidates to help, um, you know, get people more interested in an industry that, you know, sort of has a branding problem. Uh, so I just think it's a really important point. Absolutely. And, and just and I'll add on to what you said there, because it is it is a branding issue, right? I did not know I've, I've been a technical person since I was nine years old, right? I fixed my first electronic when I was nine. Um, I think I fixed my first computer when I was like 11. So even going into college, studying information technology, (laughs) getting out of college, going into the military, studying electronics and nuclear engineering, I got out of the Navy and did not know what field service was and had no idea that it existed. Right. Mm -hmm. So I got recruited (laughs) by a headhunting firm, which was, you know, and there's several of them out there that specifically target military people and then put them in field service roles. But 
outside of just speaking to technology, like even this May, I'm actually going to speak at an education event, <laughs> right? And I've spoken at them in the past to tell like the education and workforce development industries to say, hey, almost to raise a hand as a representative for field service and Absolutely. say, we're over here and this job is cool, right? That's I brilliant. just, I remember um, I asked my daughter's principal um, and my daughter was in, we have intermediate school here in Delaware, but I asked her principal, I said, if I spoke to the graduating class of a high school here and asked them who wants to make $70,000 a year, travel around the country and not work from an office, I said, how many of them would raise their hand? <laughs> and he was like, all of them. <laughs> and I'm like, exactly. But no one mm -hmm. knows this job exists, right? Every time I get on an airplane, there's like 12 field service guys on that plane every day, right? There's some guy going somewhere, whether he's the, like, I met the guy who worked on the winch mechanisms for the Cirque de Soleil circus. And that's all he did. He just worked on all the winches that you see everybody swinging on. Field service guy had a case with, with tickets from, you know, with stickers from all over the world. And I'm like, that is an awesome job, but no one knows it exists. And you always say it. And I love the way you put it. Like the brand of field service sucks, right? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not the plumber. Like everyone thinks it's like the plumber or the other guy, but field services are very, um, is a very attractive job to people. And that's why you have so many military people who get into it. It's not because it's more indicative to military people, but it's because the industry markets to military people through headhunting firms. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. when they hear about it, they're like, absolutely, I'll do that. Um, and it's yeah, we're not really positioned in any other space to do that, even at technical schools. Right. You reach out to an ITT tech or or one of those schools like they don't have relationships with all of these large companies that do field service. They're focused on biomedical and more stationary jobs that are in the area. So there's definitely a you know, we need to do something. And I think you said it before to like sexy up the brand of field service because it's an amazing mm -hmm. job. It pays well. It doesn't require a college education. You get to travel. Um, and it's like uh, there's no negatives <laughs> in that list. But yet it's such an unknown industry. Yeah. I think things like what you're doing, speaking at um, education conferences and stuff like that are are great things for companies to be thinking about because, you know, to to really, you know, finding scrambling to find people to fill jobs is putting a bandaid on the larger problem. The larger problem is that, um, you know, what we talked about earlier, there really aren't vocational schools anymore. I mean, kids are being pressured to go to college and I'm not knocking it. I mean, I have a, a graduate degree, but it isn't for everyone, you know, and, and so educating, um, educators and educating, you know, younger kids that there are other paths that can give them really successful, fulfilling careers is something that I think the entire industry needs to focus more on. So I guess I'm yeah. getting us and off I, on a I tangent, but one, I'm yeah, passionate one more about thing it. There. Um, yeah, one more thing there. Because and what it does is not only it's a problem, it's an expensive problem, because I'd made a note, because um, what winds up happening is it puts us in a position to keep hiring each other's employees. And that's an expensive position to be in. Sure. Right. Sure. So it's it's and then people just leave. Right. So I, I, I offer them 70. Somebody else offers them 75. Somebody else offers them 80. And that price to attain talent that's already mm -hmm. there keeps going up. But the talent isn't getting better. Right. Right. The talent is actually trying to retire. <laughs> so the more money you pay them, the quicker they're going to retire. Right. So we're actually worsening the problem and hastening our own demise by trying to hunt for each other's employees 
in lieu Absolutely. of actually building up, you know, through apprenticeships or training or giving people an opportunity to show that they have the skills and make it formal on a resume. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you. Um, okay. So you were going through steps. Did you have other steps? So that was step two. Um, the third step, like after we go through, you know, adjusting the job posting and the job descriptions, I would say the next step um, that is very important <laughs> is that we have to be patient with human resources and with ourselves, right? Like when you have a habit, you're in a habit. There's certain mm -hmm. resumes that they're used to looking at, all of our algorithms that are in all of our automated systems that screen resumes, whether it's through Career Builder, Indeed, or some internal tool, like that system is going to continue to give you the kind of people you've been seeing because they were the kind of people you've been selecting, right? So it's like you've almost like you've, you've, you have muscle memory <laughs> on taking the easiest approach and hiring, the, and hiring a senior technician from one of your competitors. So you have to resist that temptation. So the, that step three is really putting the responsibility, not even on human resources, but on hiring managers that in the screening process, if you're really set on farming and building your own, you know, service individuals that'll spend 10 to 15 years at your company, then don't hire people that don't fit the profile that you want. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's painful because you have to deal with resource shortages. You know, we have service time guarantees and uptime, you know, or response times and, and all these SLAs, but we, filling it with a temporary body that that's not really going to be committed or the one that may not fit with your culture and two is already ingrained with so much from previous jobs and in the industry it's going to take you more time to untrain them than you would have gotten beneficial use out of somebody you brought in that didn't have all of the experience because um, experience is used as a good word it also has a negative side to it sure right because yep. experience can also mean complacency <laughs> and people being stuck in their ways which makes mm -hmm. it harder for them to train versus somebody who's never worked in healthcare, never worked on a medical device never worked in field service when i tell them to do something they're just going to do it they don't mm -hmm. question it right and, and if they do it's normally to improve it <laughs> not because there's something else that they've done before that worked for them or was more convenient. So I think that's the third step is just struggling with that battle of once you know what kind of candidates you're looking for. And I want to be, you know, I want to add the disclaimer out there. We're not talking, when I say a profile, I'm not talking about a certain kind of person. I'm not talking about age, demographic, location. I'm just, it's like, it's a profile of person, right? This is a behavioral assessment, which doesn't discriminate, <laughs> right? We're looking mm -hmm. at skills. So you're going to, you're going to broaden that candidate pool but like we all know and all of us in technology or work for or anyone who works in a position where you hire, you kind of know the profile of the people you're trying to bring into your organization. And once you have a clear picture of that from a behavior and a skill perspective, you got to hold to it and not bring people in who don't fit it because we've learned and I can, you know, there's other data like I haven't had involuntary, I haven't had to terminate people. I've only had to terminate two people for a behavioral problem in the last six years, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Mm -hmm, um, for sure. But I have had people who didn't quite fit the profile. And that's I'll be honest, right? They didn't quite fit the profile. But we were in a pinch, you know, it was a remote area, critical customer, and we hired them. And they left. Most of the time within a year, sometimes within six months. Because they were like, I, I don't fit here. <laughs> yeah. And like, we knew that when we hired them, but they're like, well, maybe they'll edge this way. Like, no, they actually were like, this, this doesn't feel right to me. Either field service isn't right for me, being on call isn't right for me. Like they don't fit in, they don't fit the profile. They and it's not, it's never a technical problem. 
It's always the 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 culture of field service, the lifestyle of field service doesn't fit for them or their family. And then they transition. Um, and so that's the I think that's the major step because you can do everything and you can change your processes and change your job descriptions and change your job postings. But if your hiring manager still likes hiring ex-Navy, <laughs> you know, aviation technicians, he's still going to hire ex-Navy aviation technicians, right? If, mm-hmm. you know, you've got somebody who likes to hire people from Omnicell or from McKesson or, you know, from ServiceMax or anywhere, right? They used to work there. They know the company. Like if you have to break those habits first, if you genuinely want to have um, a broader reach when you're trying to recruit and retain employees. Yeah, that's good. So, um, so talk to us a little bit about your success rate with all of this. Like how much have things changed since you, you started making these changes and then what advice would you leave, uh, listeners with that, that really need to take steps to move beyond doing what they've always done? Sure. So in so we're we're probably now in our sixth year, um, starting with, you know, utilizing the behavioral assessments and then progressively kind of transitioning into specifically skills based recruitment with those behavioral questions associated. Um, So in that time and I I just so that's one one metric is I've only had two involuntary separations for behavioral issues in the last six years. So I've only had to terminate two people because they weren't behaving as we, you know, as we expect to require or mm-hmm. as our customers require when that was like a 40, 40 to 45% rate prior to that. So we were almost turning over, you know, we had turned over almost half of our organization in a matter of two years. And it was through, inv- people weren't leaving, they were being terminated for yeah. behavioral problems. Um, so that, you know, when you look at training, you know, service level compliance over time, like that was a very, um, a very costly savings and has been over the years, the one other thing that you find when you're hiring like for like um, field service industry, and you and I have talked about this before, um, the field service industry has largely been white male, right? So when you're hiring like for like, if you're hiring employees that look like your employees, you're going to have a tendency to have a large white male field service force. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, years ago, Swiss Log was probably roughly about 90% white male, you know, field service organization. In the U.S. now, and I, I just did some some numbers yesterday, and my HR, you know, they don't want, they won't quote me on it, but we're like sixty five percent white male and thirty five percent minority now, mm-hmm. right? And that's in that's in five years, <laughs> and with no intention at all, mind you. Like I don't have a diversity program. I'm not, you know, pushing my guys to hire one type of person or another. But looking at behavior instead of experience opened yeah. up the pool to people who historically haven't been in the industry. Right. And we've seen that in, you know, that's, you know, it's a 20, 20, almost 30 percent increase in diversity in five years without trying. Right. So that's one thing that was amazing. And that's racial diversity. The other thing is from an age perspective, from a like as far as demographics of generations, we almost have almost an equal split now where it's like a third millennials, a third uh, generation X and a third baby boomers. But culturally and even behaviorally, because we're utilizing assessment, they have similar behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, millennials can't work with baby boomers, can't work with Generation X. Like I have three generations of people who consistently work together, but it's because I hired people who had similar behavioral attributes. Mm-hmm. Right. So even though they may have different uh, cultural, uh, you know, <laughs> political 
whatever differences, they can work together effectively because the organiz- because organizationally we're actually recruiting for the culture across those uh, across those those um, age demographics as well. So I think those are kind of the the main metrics that I point to is that we've got a diverse organization now, um, racially, um, generationally. And so you have that. And, and because they they have similar behaviors, you have a very good transfer of knowledge, right? So, you know, I'm a baby boomer who's going to retire in the next five years, and I've got a millennial who just started, but we have similar behaviors. So even the efficiency of training is improved because people kind of, they're kind of similar, so they get along, mm-hmm. right? So you don't have that tension and, and a lot of frustration. So that's, to me, those are the major metrics that I've kind of tracked with regards to our improvement that I show um, as success, the the diversity and we the, the diversity actually got uncovered by <laughs> our partner because I was they were asking me for some data and I'm like, well, let me look into it. And when I told them, they were like, whoa, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't even thinking about it. Right. I went back and looked and was like, oh, yeah, our diversity um, has changed. I mean, for any, you know, you know, but I'm like I'm a black male. So I would assume <laughs> I'm not discriminating against people in the hiring practice. But um, but even across my team and managers and directors, and supervisors from all different backgrounds, we had like a consistent um, change in diversity and everybody's using the same tool now for recruitment and using, and we have the same pool and the same job postings when it comes to um, skills and how we evaluate their behaviors. Yeah, no, that diversity metric specifically is just a really good representation of what's possible when you, you know, stop you know, limiting yourself to criteria that you've always used. You know, I mean, the fact that that you've had that much change without even an intentional focus on that um, is really, really cool. Okay. And the so- one other thing, I know some people like money, so I'll throw a money one out there as well. <laughs> because of the difference in experience, on average, we're probably bringing people in ten to $12,000 less than we would have paid if we hired somebody you know, either from a competitor and, and that's on average, because sometimes it would have been considerably more. So you're talking about a 10 to $12,000 lower salary for someone coming in that gets up to speed quicker from Mm -hmm. a training perspective, um, and will likely stay around longer. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so leave us with your words of wisdom for people that um, are listening and have a light bulb going off in terms of, oh, wow, I really, really need to think a little bit harder about how we're doing this. My words of wisdom would be primarily understand what in your field service organization actually makes you successful. So identifying the the culture, the behavior of your employees um, that make you successful and then making it a making it a, a plan, a program, right? Putting effort into bringing people in that exemplify that behavior. Um, and at the same time, you can't do that blindly without also looking for the elements of your culture that will impede the change that's necessary for us to move into the future. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want it to seem like it's all gloom, right? Like people have their ways and I mean, or it's all flowers, I would uh, to correct that. Um, people have their ways and there are we do have good employees with bad habits. Right. So the other thing, we have good employees who who don't like change and who like for things to stay the same. Um, so we also have to make sure that we identify those cultural elements so that we're not highlighting or exemplifying um, either people or behaviors that are actually oppositional to growth or change or um, or anything that we need to do. But I, I honestly feel like 
because of just now that behavior, you know, improved diversity, it's improved morale, it's improved employee satisfaction, like hiring the right people because you understand what actually makes your service organization tick is, I think, the essential key. So if you can you can find the right technical people, you can build apprenticeship programs, you can do all kind of technical training and, you know, become the, you know, become the TED talk of field service and everyone's listening and everyone can be engaged. But if you don't have the right behavior, our customers are going to suffer, our existing employees are going to suffer, and then the, the service organization is, isn't going to be able to sustain. So I really think behavior um, is the key uh, for for growing um, and sustaining growth in a, in a successful field service organization as we move to the future with acquisitions and technology changes, right? Having the right kind of people that are committed um, you know, willing to willing to, to drop everything and, and to take care of your customers is is going to be essential. And we have to do everything we can to get those people in the door and give people opportunities who have the right heart for service. That's great. Um, I would love to have you back, Roy. I think there's a lot of other topics we could tackle uh, that kind of spin off of this. But I thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And um, to those of you listening, I mean, I really hope that you know, Roy's uh, wisdom has has helped you to think about how you could do things differently. I mean, it is it's always easier to keep doing what we're familiar with, um, but in this case, you know, like we said at the beginning, this is a problem that a lot of people are talking about. Um, a lot of people are struggling with and and losing sleep over. And I just challenge you to think about um, what action you're taking to solve it. Uh, what what work you can put into doing your part to to make that problem um, easier to deal with. So thanks again, Roy, for being with us. Appreciate your time. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Little known fact about this episode with Roy. Uh, Roy is actually a recording artist and he has a uh, studio in his house where he also works from. And his uh, PC wasn't working for our podcast recording today. So he hopped right into his booth and uh, recorded the podcast there, which I think is pretty cool. Um, thanks again to Roy for joining us today and sharing his thoughts on recruiting and hiring. I think uh, his take on um, taking action in this issue is, is really, really cool. You can follow Future of Field Service on Twitter. You can check out our written content at futureoffieldservice.com. And you can also find us on LinkedIn. If you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions for me, or if you want to talk about your service efforts, you can reach out through email at sarah at futureoffieldservice.com. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS and WorkWave. To learn more about how IFS and WorkWave service management software can work for you, visit www.ifsworld.com. Thanks for listening.